Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to the show. This is your host, Auntie Vice. It's great to be here. We're into the new year. So happy new year, everybody. And I am thrilled to have TikTok influencer, leather organizer, boot black, and and reader, huge reader on the show, Moxie Mignon. Welcome to Fat Chicks. Hey, thank you for having me here. This is awesome. I started following you because of the leather content. So we will start there, but you do so much more. So we'll get into some of the other things. So you are a boot black. I am. You organize in the boot black community. So for our listeners who may be not as familiar with boot blacking and what that is, do you want to talk a little bit about it? Sure. Boot blacking is kind of a role within the leather community that it's it's unique in the fact that you're not dumb, you're not dumb, you're not dumb, or you're not sub. Um, it's you can be either side. And the boot blacks are the people who love taking care of and preserving and sometimes even restoring the leathers of our community. So we don't always just serve our person but we will serve the community on whole working stands at conventions. There's even contests. And um, my that's the heart of the community for me. The boot blacks are the people who take care of our leathers and our leathers are our history. So yeah, it's a fun, it's a fun little position role. How did you discover and get into boot blacking? So with boot blacking, it's kind of a funny story. My partner at the time, had a pair of new boots that I didn't know what to do with. And this was, God, let me think. My youngest is 15. So roughly 14, 15, 14 years ago, somewhere in that. And I had a friend that we had dinner with once a week. And she's like, don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll show you what to do. And she brought over a boot black kit. And she taught me to take care of the boots. And at one point in time, I can vividly remember it. I'm sitting on the floor of our dining room. And there's like, I had spread out like um, newspaper and stuff just in case. And I looked over at my partner. I said, Daddy, it's like finger painting for adults. And I completely fell in love at that point. Um, I was very blessed that my friend who was teaching me her metamor happened to be an international boot black title holder. And she put us together and that person became my mentor. Um, we have since split ways, but it happens that way. Not every relationship is forever. 
And, but I learned to boot black from my mentor and I went on and I've earned titles and now I'm a boot black contest director for Northwest boot black. And I am the stands coordinator there. And I'm also the stands coordinator for South Plains leather fest. So yeah, I, I do coordinating. I still do some boot blacking. I do a little bit of teaching here and there, but I do a lot of back end coordinating mostly. For folks who are unfamiliar with, you know, you mentioned you're a title holder, you organize title contests. Lots of people are not familiar with the the title system in the leather community. So what is that? The title system? I can speak mostly from a boot black title system. The title system, and this is kind of sometimes a generic way to put it, is like the beauty pageant slash community outreach face of the community. So a boot black title, the boot black title I have is the Northwest Boot Black 2018. Um, that I learned earned that of course in 2018 at Northwest Leather Celebration. And to get that, I had to compete in ways I had my stand time judge. So I had judges sitting there watching, seeing how I worked the stands, how I work with people. I had to give a speech. I had an impromptu question and I had an interview where I was not only interviewed on my boot blacking skills, but I was also interviewed on my leather history personally and like my leather persona, if you will, to make sure that I would be a good face for the leather community as a boot black in the Northwest area. So and there are international titles. I could have gone on to compete for IMSBB, which is the International Miss Leather Boot Black Contest. Or I could have gone, at the time, the ICBB, the International Community Boot Black Contest, was still going. Um, and I could have gone on further. Life happened, and that didn't happen for me. But my producers are wonderful, who Miss Rhonda has already said, well, if you ever want to run for it, we'll still back you. And I'm like, I think I'm comfy where I am now. <laughs> I think I'm good at this level. But there are boot black titles. There are Mr. and Mrs. titles. There are MX titles now, mixed titles. And there are pet titles and all sorts of different leather titles. And it's it's a very intricate world, but it's an interesting one to exist in. The title holders are the face of the community for their reign whatever you know different different titles have different lengths of reign but you are the face of the community mm -hmm. i've heard it said a lot that the boot blacks are the ones that hold our history so how do you other than preserving the leathers and stuff how do you go about learning that history because this is not like you can't take leather history 101 in college yet i wish i could take leather history 101 that would make me so happy the leather community history right now very much is a verbal history. So it's all told through our stories and it's told through sitting and listening to people like Mama Vi. Mama Vi is the chairperson woman, like extraordinaire, hardworking head librarian and curator of the Carter Johnson Leather Library. So listening to Mama Vi's stories, and there are a handful of books. Mama Vi has written a book, but the Leather Library also has a lot more books. 
but we are the ones who hear the stories and perpetuate the stories because I will always say that the boot blacks are the hairdressers and the bartenders of the leather community. We get you one-on-one for 15 to 20 minutes and we can talk about whatever you want in that period of time. And a lot of time I get wonderful stories about the history of their boots. Like I had a woman who sat for me at uh, Sin in the City years ago who was wearing a pair of her brother's boots and he had recently passed. And she told me the story that he had met Harvey Milk wearing these boots in San Francisco. And like, it was, she went away crying. I was standing there crying. (laughs) It was an amazing experience, but the storytelling is a big part of our history. And it's, how we are how right now we are being remembered you bring up the memorial leathers and this again is something that a lot of people don't discover until they've been in the community for a while but leather is something that you know can be maintained through multiple generations of wearers so what are memorial leathers and why are they important memorial leathers are very important to us because that gives us a tangible tangible thing to our story. Memorial leathers, you'll often see boots are very memorialized in some leather families and leather communities. Um, But a lot of times you will see meerkaps, master caps, who are handed down from generation to generation to generation. I know when, and I don't remember whose cap it was off the top of my head, it wasn't someone that I was very familiar with, but at, I'm trying to think. So it would have been San Francisco Pride 2019, I think. I think it was 2019. Um, A friend of ours, a friend of mine who is also a boot black adventure pup, had the honor of doing a mirror cap, like, or the side of the street in San Francisco. And he is working on a mirror cap for a friend of his who was just going to be carried in the parade. It wasn't worn by anyone. It was just carried to honor and memorialize that person who had passed the year before. So passing down of leathers is a very, very important thing within families. And it also comes along with gifted leather. So gifted leather is often when someone in your community or someone in your close circle or family sees you doing the work. And they want to honor you with a piece of leather. Um, At South Plains, I was gifted a garrison cap from my very dear friend, AJ, who is currently the last international community boot black. But it was a way of AJ just being like, hey, I see you. And the um, garrison cap had been AJ's. So I have that little piece with of AJ with me all the time now when I in full high cow. And at one point in time, probably I will pass that to someone else. I just have to find the right person. Bring up leather families. Let's talk about those. Leather is how I came into the the whole queer kinky world and love it. But leather families are very unique in structure. So what are leather families and how do they manifest? So a little bit of background here. My biological family has always been me, my mom, my dad, my sister. 
our relationships outside with like my parents, with my mom's family at times were a little broken, with my dad's family at times were a little broken. So my parents 100% raised me in the fact that your family is who you choose. My dad is was a barber shopper, is still a barber shopper. I have probably 17 people that I refer to as uncle that are no way related to me. So leather families make sense to me. Leather families are your chosen family. You don't always get along with them. No, same way that normal biological families happen. You don't always get along with them, but they're the people you gravitate towards that you know will have your back in the worst times. And they honestly, at least in my experience, my leather family just kind of happened. I won a title and I got the producers of Miss Rhonda and Tomo. Throughout that year, I became very close with them to the point where I started referring to them as mom and dad. The next year, Brie Burning won the international, not international yet, but she won the Northwest POL title. And it became a joke that she was my sister. And like 100%, Brie is now my sister. And then I have the people that I learned boot blacking with who did the same program that I did. So like Daisy Boot Black is 100% my family and AJ has become my family, but that's, it's my chosen family. These are the people that like a little side note, this, this week, my world went sideways. My oldest had a mental health incident. Um, He is currently in a hospital, but these are the people that I called. And above and beyond that, when my child, he's 18, so he he's a, a child adult, we call him. When he was in crisis, he called a member of our leather family because he didn't feel he could tell me right away. And he knew that they would show up for him. So he called his aunt, Bo, who ran to our house. Bo is very lucky. We live six minutes away from each other ran to our house and texted me because I wasn't home. But like, well, my kids don't refer to them as leather family. They know that these are their chosen family and they are people that we can trust and we can count on that will show up for us, even if they're not happy with us. And I think that that's so important to talk about because especially we're recording this during the holiday season. A lot of us have very strained or non-existent relationships with our extended family, um, our biological families. And if you're queer, oftentimes you don't really have a strong connection to biological family. So we do develop chosen families, and leather is the, the great example of that. That leather has been chosen family for a lot of people for a very long time. And I mean, and we're talking years upon years because leather families during the AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s, these leather women were who were stepping up and taking care of these AIDS patients. And they were building their own leather families there. They were the ones having the wakes and having the funerals and making sure that these men who were very sick were fed because they had been turned away by their biological family. And it, Leather families, I think, are a cornerstone of the leather community. They really are. And as our community, at least in the U.S., ages, right? Folks in leather are getting older and older. And some of our, our great leather 
you know, speakers and representatives are in their 70s now. Race Bannon is still quite active. And I'm still working to get him to do an interview. He's amazing. He is. He, <laughs> he he does everything. And like just getting time to book him on the show has been insane. But like race is in his 70s and he's still out there and going strong. But as we age, a lot of us don't have kids that are going to take care of us. So it's our leather family and it's our chosen family. Uh, and they're as valid as any biological family. And I think that gets lost in some of the conversation in the larger larger world. Like somehow your chosen family is lesser because you don't have the blood relationship in, in larger culture, but leather really centralizes that chosen family. It does. It does. And like, I will say the nth third, it's who shows up for you. And it's not only who shows up to celebrate you because everyone will show up for the party, but it's who shows up and says, how can I support you? And it, and to me that the phrase, how can I support you is very important because like my world can be falling apart. The answer is not 22 casseroles at my door, which is how my biological family and my church family would treat me. Sometimes it's just, I need to yell and I need someone to hear it. That's not going to judge me for the words coming out of my mouth. Or I need someone to call and make my doctor's appointment because I can't, I physically can't dial the number today. So it's who shows up in the good and, but more so in the bad times. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And that's what's always drawn me into leather. Now, when I was a, a young baby queer coming into this community, leather women scared the hell out of me because they're especially butch leather women so for you i love them though <laughs> i i do to this day a butch mm. in chat leather chaps will get me on my knees faster than anything mm. yeah <laughs> right yeah that's just so good mm. but at 16 it was terrifying so when did you come in and did you have that any any hesitation approaching leather women so my experience in the leather community originally wasn't queer. I did not fully, fully accept my own queerness until much later in life, like post-divorce, all of that. So my experience leather was het leather, which is something I, it's completely different, completely different than queer leather. I am much more at home in queer leather communities. But as I came into the queer leather community, I was actually really blessed that I was halfway tied to an international title holder who held my hand through the whole process. Was I intimidated? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There are certain uh, butch leather dykes like Daddy Saul. Daddy Saul, there is not anything I, and I mean, and she may not even know my name. And that's okay because. I don't think I could say two words to her and not blush. Patty Patty, an international Miss uh, Miss Leather. I have such a huge crush on her. She does know because people are like, oh, Patty, da-da-da, Boxy. But she intimidates the crap out of me to this day. And I've had conversations with her. But there is something about a butch woman, as you said, in chaps or in a nice pair of West Coast. I'm like, would you like to walk on me? 
because I'm willing to lay down right a sidewalk. Okay. But yeah, um, my coming into the community was a little different with my attachments because I got to meet very influential people pretty fast. But uh, yeah, they still all intimidate me. All of them. Everyone. (laughs) And I think it's important to acknowledge that I have a lot of listeners who are newer and coming into the kink and into the the leather world and they'll be very intimidated and somehow feel you know like they shouldn't or you know they don't belong and it's i think it's important to let the newer folks coming in know that yeah even those of us who've been in this for 30 and 40 years are still like oh my god who's that and we will fangirl we will fangirl i yeah i will fangirl I have still, I will still fangirl sometimes over Tomo if she looks amazingly hot. And I call her dad. And the same way, like Tomo and Miss Rhonda, there are things about them that will intimidate me, but they're my family and they're both amazing, hardworking people. It's just, yeah, there's still that certain level of awe that comes with meeting someone that you admire. And I I don't ever want to let go of that. So you talk about coming out later in life as queer. I want to talk about that. We've had a few folks on the show who went through a marriage and in their 30s or 40s or 50s discovered they're queer, which is a very different model, right? All the stuff on coming out is like how to help your young teen come out, which is great and fantastic. But there's still a lot of folks who are still coming out later in life. So when did you start to suspect that you might not be straight? So I always identified as bisexual. Always. I was one of those people like in, I've always felt that gender, gender is not only a spectrum, but I've always felt that sexuality is a spectrum. And like, in my brain no one is 100% straight like I I don't that concept boggles my head I they obviously exist I get it but it just boggles my mind um so I had always been by I got married I got divorced I have two amazing children and I fell into very much I was born and raised in northwest Indiana in I graduated in 94. I don't think and I don't think we had a single out queer person in my graduating class. Like when we were in high school, I don't think we had anyone who was out and queer. As we went through college, a handful of people came out, but I was still like, no, no, I I I like no, I I live that heteronormative life to appease those around me. And after my divorce and moving across the country, I just kind of, and I still, I still dated some cis men when I moved out here and I'm in Reno now, but I just hit a point where I was like, this is not who I am. And I think it honestly clicked like 100% clicked after my first trip to IMSL, which is the International Miss Leather Contest, which was being held in San Jose. It's just a 40 minute flight for me and a cheap flight that was amazing. After my first IMSL, where I truly saw and got to experience queer people just being queer. Like, no, there was no level of masking, if you will, or faking. It was just queer people existing. And I was like, 
this is home. This is where I feel most comfortable. And after that, it still was a pretty slow transition for my parents. I think my mom finally realized I was queer after I had a girlfriend for two years. (laughs) Where she's just like, yeah, okay. And then a big turning point for me 100% was the pandemic. I was sent home to work for almost three years. And during that time, I just kind of came into my own. And I was just like, nope, this is who I am. I'm not going to mask for work. I'm not masking for my family. I'm not doing it anymore. And as far as work, work knew me as dating men. They didn't click it as that's a trans man. Because I had had two partners while I was working at my office who would come and pick me up and drop stuff off. And they're like, that's that's her her boyfriend, Zach, or that's her boyfriend, Casey. Not even clicking to them. And it was just one of those things where when I came back into the office, I had actually promoted and into a different office. And I sat down with my supervisor. I was like, I need you to know that I am 100% queer. I wear t-shirts that say protect trans kids. I I'm not I'm not going back in the closet for this job and I need to know that that's a safe place for me. And she was 100% supportive. She's like, I just asked like if you're wearing anything too outlandish, if our higher-ups because I do work for the state. Oh, she's like if we have higher-ups in the office, just when you leave our little office area, throw on a hoodie so you don't have to have an uncomfortable conversation in a hallway. I was like, okay. So for me coming into it, a big chunk was my first trip to Imsel, but a good a good chunk of that was sitting with myself and doing a lot of time during quarantine of this is where I'm truly happy. And I don't need to hide that from anyone anymore. How so. did it change your relationship with yourself to fully come into your queerness? I I didn't like myself for years, for years. And I didn't know why. Like, I've always had, I, I'm not afraid to say I, I have mental health um, issues, if you will. I'm ADHD. I am on the autism spectrum. I've, I have, I've had all these pieces and as I came into myself, I felt like my pieces were coming together. Like my puzzle was finally being built and I could see the full picture of myself. And it, it's just, it's such an interesting idea because it's like, I felt like I was always looking for something that was missing. And that thing that was missing for me was the queer community because the queer community and this is going to sound rude, but straights don't have a community. It's just, we're straight and this is what we are. But as queers, we had to have a community for years. And we still do because we are, we're protecting ourselves and each other. So having that community and coming into that, that was like my final little puzzle piece. It was like that middle center piece. And I'm like, oh, that's me. And I like myself a lot better now. I I like who I am and I like what I look like. And 
since I, I'd been battling that since I was 14. It just took many, many years to find that middle piece. <laughs> that makes me so happy for you. Like I get all the warm fuzzies with that. That's wonderful. And coming into your, your queerness, you've just done a year in queer lit. So what inspired you to decide to read queer authors for a year? So I am, let me see, I'm like three or four months in. So August, October, November, I just finished the third month of Queer Lit. It happened, ironically, I am polyamorous. I, I have two amazing partners who are unbelievably supportive at all times. Um, one of them actually just built a bed frame for me this morning. We love Sarah to pieces. She's amazing. But through my conversation with my friend, with my partner D, who I am in a dynamic with. We have a daddy girl dynamic. One day he had ordered a uh, book off of TikTok by a queer author and it just got there and he was re just reading it. And I was just like, hmm, maybe I should be reading Queer Lit. And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, you know, I, I'm an avid reader. I love reading. I love audiobooks. It's totally my jam. I was like, but what if I just honestly dedicated a full year to only reading stuff by queer authors or with queer topics? And he's just like, okay, that sounds awesome. That sounds great. I was like, okay, well, let's do this. And we had a trip planned for my birthday. I, I went back home to Indiana for my birthday. He was coming to meet me there. And I was like, I'm starting on my birthday. And he's like, okay. And I put a call out to my Facebook friends. I was like, okay, I need to create a new TBR, a new TB red, to be red list. Give me your queer content. And I did the same thing on TikTok. I was like, okay. And I kind of was just like, oh, I'll just play with this a little bit. And I got like over 50 or 60 books recommended in like two days. And I was like, okay, well, this is now a thing. And now I've decided that I am documenting my journey of reading the queer books. So every time I read a book, I do a little blurb on TikTok and let people know that what I've read and what I'm currently reading. And people are always throwing me more book ideas. And in the process, though, my, my TBR is over 200 books. This is going to go well past a year. I am completely in love with it. I have found wonderful resources. There is a TikTok account, the Queer Liberation Library. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they're an online library that only is queer books and queer authors. And like, I love this. I mean, their their catalog's not big right now, but I think I just got a message this morning that one of the books I had on hold is available, so I can just go grab it and put it on my Kindle, and. It yeah, I'm super excited about it. What have been some of your favorites you've read so far? My favorite thing that I have read so far, um, and I don't remember the author, it was a YA book. It's called Man of War. And it's a book about a non-binary kid who at the very beginning of the book doesn't know they're non-binary. But as we go through it, he's in high school and going through graduating and school and all of these things. 
And he literally comes into his queerness. He meets another non-binary kid at a school field trip. And it just chronicles the journey. And not only a journey of non-binary going into a trans mask, but a journey of dealing with his parents who had very particular views and for a long time still used the she, her pronouns and, and the name that the family had given her. And it was an absolute beautiful and stunning story. Um, my other favorite book right now is Her Majesty's Royal Coven. I, I 100%, I, I will admit it, I devoured the Harry Potter book series. I read it to my children. We, I, I am a Hufflepuff for life, but the author is very problematic. And as someone who also has a trans mask 18 year old son, we can't support them anymore. We, we can't do that. Um, so there is a book series by, I want to say the author's name is Juno Dawson, who is a trans author. And it is taking, it reminds me of the Harry Potter feel, but these witches are adults and they are queer adults. There's non-binary characters. Um, the first book uh, highlights a trans feminine youth. And I am absolutely obsessed with this book. I finished it in like two days and it's, it's really, it's top up there on my list. Like, I absolutely loved it. <laughs> what are you learning about yourself by reading these queer authors? Uh, by reading the queer authors, a lot of it is you're not alone. And, like, the questions that come up in some of the books, like, even just dealing with identity things. I can kind of pinpoint because I will admit I do read a lot of YA. YA is very uh, satisfying to me because one, I can read them fast. And two, I always, I'm not a little, but I will joke that I am a middle. I, I am that angsty teenager of what I want to be. But I really feel like I connect with these these characters because these characters are questioning things that I turned my back on those questions of, Hey, I have this crush on this girl where the character in the book goes forward and like pursues that crush or figures it out. When I was 14 and I had a crush on a girl, it was 1992. I had no real models to look at. And I was just like, okay, I'll just shove that inside because I don't want to be the gross kid. I don't want to be picked on. But it's it's really nice to see the questions that I had at that age grow on and have the answers without, you know, it being 20 years later and me going, yep, fuck all that. <laughs> We're just going to roll with it now. But yeah, it's I think that's a big, big draw to me. and just seeing that I'm not alone was a big thing. So you are raising kids. And right now in this country, we're having this huge conversation over what's appropriate in the school systems. So mm -hmm. as a mom with kids, 
what has helped them through this? And is there any legitimacy to concerns about queer lit in school or saying gay or any of these bands? I don't. Oh, my goodness. So. I have a trans mass son and I have an asexual son. They both fall under our umbrella. They're both amazing, wonderful kids. To me, it's always about, and this even goes as far as the fact that I'm in the leather community. It's always about the age-appropriate answers. When my children were five and six, would it be appropriate for me to explain what exactly happens at a leather convention? No. So they know knew at that time that mommy went to hang out with their friends and talk about leather care. It's always the age-appropriate answers. So like a kindergartner reading a book about a child who has two parents who are the same sex is no big deal. I mean, at no point in time are these characters banging. No, because that's age-appropriate. The same way that like there are heterosexual smutty books. We're not reading those to kids either. <laughs> so it's all about the age appropriateness. And I think that there is a there is a path to go all the way through school. And I think that one of the big things that is missing, and I may be bunny trailing right now, is we teach kids in sex ed how to have safe heterosexual sex. In the best circumstance. Yeah. We teach them how to put on a condom. There are so many levels of safe sex in the queer community that I think also need to be discussed. Because at 14, 15, yes, I was making out with girls and doing things that I did not have any clue what I should have been doing. But I think that's one of those things that does need to be discussed. But the conversation always needs to come back and start with and end with the idea of consent. And consent is something that we can start teaching to kindergartners. I I will always joke, I I have two boys, they roughhouse, they play, they They've always been like that and they're best friends. So when my youngest was around four or five, they were arguing over probably a video game or maybe it was a toy. I don't know. But all of a sudden I hear my youngest yell, consent is a thing. And I was just like, oh, I'm doing my job right. Because I started modeling that for them at a young age because no you don't always have to give your aunt a hug if you're not feeling it you can say no and the conversation all the way through whether we are talking truly sex ed or whether we are talking about queer themes throughout education is consent we have a right to say no and we have a right to say yes and people should be asking the questions so we can answer them and that is that is so critical. I'm here as as is my sister um, in California, and luckily we have some of the more advanced sex ed for the country. 
right? Legally, you have to include LGBTQ kids in sex ed. Now, is it always implemented? No, I'm in a conservative county in Nevada, and most schools just opted to stop teaching sex ed, period, rather than include kids. Yeah. But, but her son's in San Francisco, and so they do talk about consent. And getting he's in fifth grade now, and they're starting to do like the sex talks and everything like that in school. And it's so critical because that's not anything I learned going through. That's what I learned through the queer community and the leather community was consent. I never had those conversations in any of my sex ed classes. I never had those conversations. And not only did I not have conversations around consent, I never had conversations around bodily autonomy. And that's like a big thing. Like, I I don't know how. And I mean, even in the het world, that should be a big thing. Like, we need to discuss about your body is your own. And you don't have to do what other people ask you to do. And yeah, I know within, we are in Nevada. And I we have a relatively okay, it's called the SHARE program relatively okay program i don't think it includes anything on lgbtq other than yes these people exist but at least you know it says yes these people exist that that's leaps and bounds above what indiana had when i was growing up but they do they do model it on consent which i've been very happy about so far yeah and and teaching that at a younger age because like you i grew up not knowing how to set those boundaries not even knowing what was okay with me when I got into situations or ever thinking about that. And I think it's one of the things that kink and leather really does add to our conversations around consent. And I mean, all of this, we were doing well before me too. Uh, Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. But it, it, our bodily autonomy is under attack in this country, especially if you're assigned female at birth, we have, so many of our our body parts regulated so since you've been in in the um title contest and stuff one of the things that comes up is how do we assure safety for people like leather contests can be very sexualized you have to do the whole fantasy thing and and reenact it but let's talk about how when you're in large groups and people are sexualized to some point how do we set those boundaries and keep people safe I think one of the things is what we kind of lean into is modeling behavior. If the people above us or the people around us are also modeling this consent of, yes, this is okay with me. No, this is not okay with me. Uh, One thing you'll see in the leather community and leather circles is before we go to conventions, a lot of us like to do a little questionnaire of like, this is my name. This is what I'm doing at the convention. But one thing that I've really seen that I like seeing is the questions as they go on are like, are you going to be cruising? Yes or no? Um, Is it okay to flirt? Yes or no? But one of the things that I've seen on a lot of them is, are hugs okay? Because it is absolutely, it's, our built our brains are built to echo other people's behavior. So it's the idea of if I yawn, more than likely you're going to yawn also. 
Well, that goes well beyond yawning. So if I walk up to Auntie Vice and I open my arms up to hug her, the instant your brain goes, oh, I should go in for this hug. That hug is not okay with everyone. Like, I am a hugger. If I have known someone more than five minutes, I'm probably okay with hugging you. But not everyone is that way. And I think the modeling behavior around consent, even in those questionnaires, or just like, I can open my arms up to Auntie Vice, and if she's not feeling a hug, she can take a step away and say, no, Moxie, not right now. And I'm like, oh, cool. Catch up with you later. High five. What Elbow bump. What? And I think that's one of those things that we we see a lot within the community. And I would also like to see more. Because like we do have our whole flagging system. But I will tell people that flagging system is just an opening for a conversation. So if I have a red hanky out of my back right pocket, no, that does not mean that I want you to come fist me right now. But we can talk about it. So, yeah, I I just think the modeling behavior is something that is different. And I think as, as queer folk, or at least for me as queer folk, I'm always reading people. So if I'm reading someone and they're like, they're a little bit closed off or I've offered a hug and they're like, no, no, thank you. I'm like, okay, cool. I can go ahead and model that same behavior back to you. I can give you the energy you're giving me and we can be cool. I don't have to hug you. I don't have to kiss you. I don't have to high five you. Um, even in a very sexualized space, even in a very sexualized space, I'm allowed to not be, exist as a sexualized human being if I don't want to. And I think part of that modeling is modeling saying no and respecting the no. Because it's one thing to say no, but in the broader culture, especially in the heterosexual culture, that no is not always respected, especially between men and women. Um, there are yes. so many horror stories of women saying no and then men having these exaggerated, violent reactions to a no. Yeah. You have two sons. So how how have you taught them to receive a no from somebody they're interested in? To no is a very big word in our house. We use it all the time. And the phrase that I often that we'll use, because even as a teenager, they're both teenagers now, there's pushback. And it's like, I will look at them and go, I'm sorry, Max, right now you have to accept this no. I don't have to give you any reason. No is the complete sentence. If you would like to talk about it later, we can, but that conversation is not going to happen right now. So accept the no is something they have been hearing since they were tiny, since it was taking away the McDonald's toy that has been thrown at my head for the fifth time in the car. Um, accept the no. And I think that's the big thing is like, no, we sometimes we don't get to understand why someone else said no. And they've been raised with that. And I'm also, I mean, just full, full diving here. I'm also a former youth pastor. I worked with seventh grade to uh, senior in high school for years and years in a capacity of a lot of modeling. Once again, I, I'm very fortunate that I worked with a very progressive, very accepting 
rainbow flags in the sanctuary church. But we had to have lots of conversations around, no, no is a complete sentence. And we don't have you. I owe you no explanation on why I say no. So for us, that's that's a big one. No is a complete sentence. And you don't have to know why I said no. I'm completely on board with you on that. And I will die on that hill. There is this whole trend in parenting of we don't use the word no in the house. And yeah, that free range parenting shit. I'm like, no, not going to work for I will die on the hill. You have to teach your kids no means no. And you stop and you don't have to explain everything. Sometimes in some cases, sure. But as a parent, you can say no and they got to go with it. You don't have to justify everything. And for me, it's like, okay, it's okay in your household Mm -hmm. and you're in your bubble. If you don't want to use the word, no, that's great. But in the real world, we use the word no on a regular basis. So your kids at least need to know how to appropriately respond to the word. No. Yeah, no, it's, it's crazy to me how, so many folks feel that you need a justification on every time you say no or turn something down. And and we shouldn't be modeling that. We shouldn't be teaching that. It's part of consent is accepting the no. Yeah. And no's sometimes are very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Very uncomfortable. But that's my discomfort to sit in, not my turn to now make you feel uncomfortable because I don't get it. No, I love that. If our listeners want to find you, follow you on TikTok, follow your adventures in queer reading, all of the things, plug your sites and and socials. Okay, so I am Moxie Minion anywhere that matters. So Moxie Minion on Facebook, Moxie Minion on TikTok, Moxie Minion on FetLife. I will warn you, I don't look at FetLife all that often because it's a hole. Um, It's not the best place, friends. But I am Moxie Minion absolutely across the boards. But if you're looking to follow Year of Queer Lit, the hashtag is hashtag Y-O-Q-L. That will put you to every Year of Queer Lit video I've done on TikTok. And if you go to my TikTok profile, there's also a playlist there. So it's kind of funny because I'm getting a lot of more followers from BookTok and things who are like surprised when I, you know, post the boot black pledge that shenaniganed up the other day and they're like oh this is not the content i was following for but i'm a multifaceted person it's not just all books all the time for me that's awesome thank you for being on the show listeners we will have all of all of moxie's links and more and if you're interested in joining your own year of queer lit please check out the big queer book club on discord I am hosting monthly conversations, and so far I've got all the authors to agree to show up and talk about their books. So join us there. Follow Moxie. I love her content, and thank you again for being on Fat Chicks. Thank you so much for having me. This has been amazing. And now, a moment of gratitude. I'm very grateful for like today, like if we go right now today, I'm very grateful for my partners and my chosen family 
and the people who are surrounding us in love. Because like, as I said, we're going through some stuff right now. On top of it being, you know, the holiday season, and that is very hard for so many people. It's like, we're we're in the thick of it a little bit. And I'm finding community in places that I didn't expect it. Um, above and beyond my leather family who has stepped up and my two partners who are absolutely amazing. I had a wonderful experience with my supervisor at work this week who I had texted her to tell catch her up on what was going on. And she she just responded with, I want you to know that there are people out here who care for you and who will do things for you. I just want you to know you're not alone. I've never had that happen in a work experience. Like I was just like, I was absolutely floored. I was I ended up calling um, my partner Dan and like reading him the text and I'm in tears. And I'm very thankful for all the support I have surrounding me right now. I mean, my girlfriend is up. She lives in Sacramento. I'm in Reno. Um, The past can be iffy during the winter for people who don't live out here. Like our relationship, we joke, is really a spring-summer relationship because winter, we might see each other. But she came up to make sure that the world is still okay over here and like make sure that today's my mom's birthday. Make sure I make it to my mom's house, which is only eight minutes away on her birthday. So I'm very thankful for the people who are showing up for us right now. Hello, everybody. My name is Nika Sherell, and I am here to tell you about the next IISE Global Summit. The International Institute for Sexual Empowerment is dedicated to creating brave spaces where all people feel safe to talk about sex. We are thrilled to announce the much-anticipated third annual IISE Global Summit, taking place this February 3rd through the 10th. This year's theme is Reclaiming Sexuality, and this summit is for everyday people. A live, online, groundbreaking event that offers a unique and inclusive platform to discover your own journey with sexuality. This is a journey of transformation. We will begin by looking at how the world views sex and our relationship to our own sexuality. Middle of the week focuses on healing trauma and overcoming prejudice, and the week will end by creating intimacy and empowering relationships. This allows us to move forward in our lives with aliveness and celebration. With 25 speakers from over 12 different countries, we will delve into the most pressing issues, advancements, and breakthroughs in the realm of sexuality, education, and health. Learn more at sexhealthsummit.com and get your tickets today. Again, that's sexhealthsummit.com. Texas of the world.
thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.